So this message is entitled, A Powerful Message for a Humble Church. I am amazed once again by our only Andy Christensen and, and his team members there in the sound booth that uh, as I was driving here this morning, having been made aware that I'm preaching this morning, he uh, was thoughtful enough to even put together a lovely little graphic that, that captures the sense of what I see in the book of Colossians and, and in this text this morning. I do want to take a moment, though, and just say um, something that I've heard David Platt say. David Platt, what a wonderful preacher he is, and increasingly used by God on a, on a broader and broader scale within the body of Christ. He often will say as he preaches that he, he's the least worthy to be preaching the message. And I don't think I ever understood very well what he meant by that. But I understand it a little bit today. We all sin in many ways. We always need the grace of God to forgive us and this week, I really blew it with my family. I feel so terrible about that. I've asked their forgiveness, and they've been very gracious to be kind and merciful to me. I, um, I, I grew up in a home that was full of violence. I, I, uh, my, both my parents grew up in the projects in Boston. I, and, and that violence has not marked our home. I thank God for that. But, but some of the things I heard as a child from a young age came flying out of my mouth this week and I have no excuse for that. I reached out to Brandon on Friday to see if I could meet with him and say maybe someone else could be on deck for today because I just feel so horrible about my own sin and Brandon wasn't available and then I had to go down to Brooklyn and, uh, for, for a job and, and I just trust the grace of God that, that he's with me today. But I want to say again to my family, I'm so sorry. Thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy toward me. It is true that when we feel our greatest need for God's mercy and, and God's grace that we often experience it. God is a friend of sinners that are repentant. And I am repentant. I, I feel terrible to have... Um, Expose my, my, my sons to what I saw spewing out of my father's mouth as someone who stopped drinking through the, the amazing work of Alcoholics Anonymous, who um, left the Catholic Church. He, my father grew up in, in, in um, the projects, as I mentioned, and, and, and was trained by nuns who thought that left-handed children should be disciplined for being left-handed. Um, and uh, he struggled in what he saw of God in the Catholic Church. But in God's mercy, as far as I can tell, my father did come to faith in Christ. And yet there were so many battles in his soul to move away from sin by which he, he, he was hard on his family, myself and my four brothers. And God took him. I think God took him perhaps because he wasn't winning those battles. So my father died at the age of 40 when I was 12. I won't say any more about that. This isn't a message about me and, and my sin and my unworthiness, but I, I'm so grateful for the word of God and how powerful it is to speak to me, to speak to you. We all stand in need of, of God's grace this morning. Colossians is one of the most amazing books in the New Testament. I want to talk a little bit about the book 
and why I say this is a humble church. One of the unique things you realize as you read the book of Colossians and see the broader context in the New Testament is that Paul never made it to Colossae. This is a church that never saw Paul face to face. They were outside of his ministry. It was a small, out-of-the-way place. Paul had an a very significant ministry going on in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very important city, a city where Paul established uh, an ongoing ministry for several years. And if you think of it, um, Ephesus might be compared to Times Square. Some of, some of you have perhaps been to Times Square Church. We have dear friends in, in, in Middletown who were part of the Times Square Church. That's a very happening place, Times Square So much is going on there, and to have a church there, um, you couldn't say it's a humble church in in one sense because it's a church where it's right in the middle of Manhattan. So many things happening there. It's a larger church, and Ephesus was like that. But what had happened, and you see it uh, here in verse 7 of our text, Colossians 1 verse 7, Paul is talking to the Colossians and talking about this gospel, this word of truth, and he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So Paphras was one who came to faith under the ministry of Paul, and he was so powerfully converted. He was one who loved the gospel, and as he had opportunity to travel, he was involved with the the city of Colossae, a very small city, an out-of-the-way place, It was not a place that you had to go to for any reason. In fact, as time went by, the Romans adjusted the roads so that the road actually went around Colossae, and in the end, Colossae sort of disappeared. It's it's significant and not surprising that when we come to the letters written to the churches in the book of Revelation, Colossae is not among them. Of course, Ephesus is there. Epaphras apparently had a ministry to the city of Colossae and perhaps to Laodicea. Um, and you, see, you pick up on some of that as you, as you work your way through the, the letter to the Colossians. If you just turn the page over to chapter 4. Um, chapter 4, we see a little more about Epaphras. And we thank God for him because, you know, we have lots of people we know named Paul, don't we? Lots of people we know named Timothy. I, I don't know anyone named Epaphras. And I, if we had more children, I'd probably want an Epaphras. Such a wonderful brother. Just, just look at this. Ephesians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. He says this, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Gives us a little insight into the life of Epaphras and how Paul is connected to the Colossian church through Epaphras. Apparently, as Paul is writing this letter, he also writes a letter to the church in Laodicea. You see that... um, Paul goes on to say in in verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. This is a beautiful um, 
part of this epistle that gives us a sense of the life of the early church. These letters were being written by Paul. This letter we have, we thank God for the way he's preserved it. We actually believe that the letter to the Laodiceans is probably the letter that we call Ephesians. It became a, a bit of a circular letter. It was such a robust, strong, uh, helpful letter, um, like Colossians, but perhaps more so in the mind of the, the leadership teams then, that they started sending that letter to all of the churches and then just changing where it said Laodicea and putting other cities like Ephesus. And we think that what we have as the letter to the Ephesians was probably originally this letter that Paul references here. Not a critical thing to, to take a position on, but interesting to think about the way this is working. So Colossae is a, a very small, out-of-the-way place. And the book of Colossians, if you think about it, if you study and use resources by which they count the words in these different epistles, it, um, you can see right away Colossians is a smaller epistle than, say, Romans, right? Romans is such a, a lengthy 16 chapters of powerfully unfolding theology. Colossians is, is a much smaller book. Uh, if you think about it in terms of weapons, you might think of Romans as like a broadsword, uh, just an enormous weapon that comes and swinging toward us to, to deal with our sin and build us up in the faith. And Colossians, you might think of more as like a little dagger, just a smaller weapon by which God is working on us. This epistle and, and this communication with the church in Colossae represents the fewest words that Paul writes to any church in the New Testament. So he writes more words to Romans, to the, to the church in Rome, with the two letters to Corinthians. He writes, of course, more words to the Corinthian church. Um, and with the two letters to the church in Thessalonica, he writes more words to them than to, than to this church. So this is a humble church, a humble circumstance that, that Paul is addressing here, and yet he doesn't see them as undeserving of a letter from him. And we might thank God that God cares about humble churches because we are a bit of a humble church ourselves and perhaps even more humble than the last couple of years than, than in years ago. I can remember uh, my family and I used to sit up in the balcony there, that, that back part of the, the church, and we used to look down here at how full it was. And, and they had taught us in seminary that when your church reaches like 85% capacity, it's time to expand because as much as people love the gospel and love church, they're not going to cram in so tight to 100% capacity. I remember thinking, boy, we're going to have to expand or do something. And in God's providence, our church has experienced humbling again and again. And I hope that we are able to receive such humbling. Difficult circumstances have come our way and, and things we, we would never have wished on any church and especially not our own. But, but God is with us. God cares about humble churches like Milford Bible Church. And God isn't done with our church. Oh, we can know that he's not done with our church. There's a bright hope for us. I pray indeed that our best days are ahead of us and not behind us. I believe that's true. I believe that's true. This is a beautiful place where anyone can come in these doors and hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I know so many people that have come from the Catholic Church, and I mean the Catholic Church, no disrespect, but there are so many ways where the gospel is just mangled and, 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 and unrecognizable because tradition has been piled on top of this book in a way that it's not even clear that Jesus Christ alone is our hope of salvation. And his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to give you eternal life, and you don't ever have to suffer in purgatory. This is a place you can hear that message. This is a place where you can hear the gospel preached. And so my hope this morning is to let the message of Colossians come out to you and to me, that we would hear from God in this book, that I might faithfully unfold the message of, of this text and of even this book and call you to see things in this text. This is a message about the power of the gospel. This is a message about death and resurrection. It's a message about union with Christ. It is a very powerful message. And may God have mercy on each of us and let us receive from him the grace that is here in this book. It is a powerful message for a humble church. And when I say powerful message, I, I have to think about the, um, the account in the book of Judges. Uh, so many interesting accounts from the book of Judges. And uh, there was uh, a season in the life of Israel when um, they were under foreign rule, foreign oppression once again because of their sin and walking away from God. And they were under the rule of a, a king whose name was Eglon. Eglon was an enormous individual physically. Um, if you've seen Jabba the Hutt in the Star Wars series, that might help you envision Eglon. He was just a massive person, as the text reveals, just a very heavy person. And he was ruling over the, the nation of Israel, um, oppressing them and other peoples, perhaps. And it was time to pay the taxes. And there was a man named Ehud, a left-handed man who was a judge in Israel. And he went up to bring the, supposedly to bring the taxes to Eglon, pay tribute. And as he approaches the king, he says to the king, I, I have a message from God for you kind of a secret message. And the king sort of went along with, with Ehud in his covert mission that he's developing here. And the king sent everyone out of the room and Eglon being a left-handed man wasn't sufficiently, sufficiently checked for weapons. He had a dagger on his right thigh which he could grab with his left hand and, and use. And as he was alone with the king in that room, he took that little dagger and drew it and the message from God for Eglon was a surprising message. You know what it was? You're dead. You're dead, Eglon. And he put that dagger into Eglon, and it's, you can go back and read it in the book of Judges. That, um, it's a really graphic depiction of how Eglon died and how God did indeed send a message, and the message was, you're dead. Well, in a similar way, we have a message from God for ourselves in this text and the message is indeed that we are, we are dead. We're dead to the old man. Why do we keep listening to the old man? Why do we keep giving in to him? It's a very powerful message. If you turn again just a little bit forward in the book of Colossians to chapter 3, 
you can see Paul emphasizing this powerful truth that, that we are dead. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, look how Paul unfolds this incredible message. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I'll leave it there for the moment, but, but that's such a powerful, compelling truth. If you don't understand that as a believer, you really need to understand that message. You have died. The old you that, that hated Jesus, the old you that worshiped self, is dead. Died with Christ. One of the reasons we, we love baptism as practiced by Baptist churches and Baptistic churches like ours, right here in this very baptistry, and also in other occasions, other places like lakes and pools, is the imagery that's in the New Testament regarding baptism. You are buried with Christ. That's why during baptism, we, we lower the individual into the water. And we often say, and, and, and it is true, if, if, if the person stayed down there, they would be dead. It's a picture of death and then the picture continues such that the person comes up out of the water, raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. That truth has to be ever-present in our minds. And when we get off track, when I, when I get off track, and it's with me powerfully this morning, when, when, when we get off track, it's because we're forgetting this truth, that we have died with Christ and our life is not what it used to be. I, I think about a place in Massachusetts where there's a number of towns, houses, people lived in these houses and towns. I imagine if, if my wife and I had a, had a home there, what it would be like to, to live in one of these towns in the middle of Massachusetts. And, and if I had come home one day and say, oh honey, I, I got some, some new furniture for, for, for our house here. And... Um, ready to bring into the house. Well, in, in, in any of these particular towns, my wife would look at me and say, what, what, are you, what are you, crazy? I'm talking about the towns that are inside and, and underneath what's called the Quabbin Reservoir. Massachusetts realized that they needed a large reservoir of water. There was a, a set of towns that was located in a, in, a, in a depression that made it a good location for a reservoir. And over time, those towns were, were evacuated and, and, and people were allowed to move out and, and take their things with them. And then they flooded the Quabbin Reservoir and those towns are buried. And so if I came home to my wife and said, well, I have some new furniture that will look perfect in our house, she'd say, you're, you're, you're off your head. That house is underwater. That house is gone. It's dead. And, and, and it's like that with our life. We, we ought not to think of our old life as something that we want to feed, something that we are giving into. We're moving away from that life and moving toward our life in Christ. Very powerful text. 
Very powerful text here. And what we must needs do is set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are earth. Just as it says there in chapter 3, verse 2. We must needs do that. So this is a message about death and resurrection. A message about how to live the life of Christ. And... Um, I want to draw several thoughts, I, I think, this morning from, from chapter 3 there. I do want to say this, though. I want to encourage all of you. Here, here we're beginning summertime, and, and last weekend was Memorial Day weekend. We think of that as the unofficial start of summer. It's good for us as believers to have a summer plan for our spiritual growth. And perhaps if you're a student and, and school is wrapping up, you've got more time on your hands. Take and read the book of Colossians. It's very short. You can read it. In a brief amount of time, read it through from start to finish. As you see in chapter 4, the intention of Paul in writing this was that the, this letter would be read over and over again in the churches. And, and, and with the means we have today, we can read it in our homes. Read it over and over again from start to finish and see what a powerful text it is. A powerful letter, epistle. But see several things here in in the beginning of chapter 3. Several things. Four points. Number one. Affirm and embrace your death. You died. 3 verse 3. Know your resurrection. In verse 1 it says. You have been raised with Christ. This is the reason. That someone can. See their sin and still have hope. It's the power of the resurrection. The third point I would say is this, kill the deadness. And, and that comes up as we move down into verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all powerful way that we must heed the words of Paul and kill the deadness. Excuse me. Lastly, I want to encourage all of us to, to live the Christ life and look at verse um, 15. It says this, and let the peace of Christ, and I'm in chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So I want to develop those points a little bit as we, as we spend some time in this text. I want to encourage you to, as I mentioned the last time I preached, to, to look at the text and see what God is saying here. I hope to draw your attention to certain things here, but one of the sweet things that you experience as you grow in the faith, as you spend time in the Word, 
the best gems that you take from the word of God are often the ones you mine out yourselves. You, you study the text and you'll see things in the text. Prof. Hendricks, uh, another, I've mentioned him before, but one of the things I like that he said, he said, you know, it's amazing how much light the scripture can shed on the commentaries. <laughs> In other words, you keep reading the text and you'll see things that the commentators saw and maybe you'll see things they didn't see. They don't have any advantage over you per se. Yes, most commentators probably read Greek and Hebrew, but this is the word of God and you have the spirit of God living in you. So let the text speak in you and study the text. <clears throat> so this, this text, this, this epistle is, is, a, is an amazing um, epistle. And it's, it's working through what we need to do as believers. What we need to do. And I've thought about um, the trend years ago when uh, we would talk about road rage. And, and, and then we talked about air rage and how... There's a problem in our culture that people get so full of rage and they act on that rage. And you, you've seen it perhaps on the news. You've seen probably YouTube videos where someone gets upset and, and they, you know, they get cut off and they think they're going to teach this other person a lesson. But, but one of the things that is active in any kind of rage like that is, is really the underlying problem. And if we labeled it correctly, I think we would probably call it pride rage. Because that's the, the, the fundamental issue when people are acting out, when, when people are doing what Paul says not to do in verse 8 of chapter 3. When he says you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, these kinds of things. They, they shouldn't be coming from us. And, and, and they're rooted in pride. Because Paul wants us to understand and, and, and move into this powerful truth that we died and it's good that we died. We died with Christ. And death is hard. Death is not a pleasant thing. I can't think of any circumstances under which you could get a phone call and find out about a death that you would set to rejoicing. Death is hard. And the death of our old man is very good. It's very good. One of the things we must do, and you can take your scriptures and turn back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We, we see Paul unfolding this powerful truth more in this, in this context in the middle of the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, page 1120 in this pew Bible for you here in the sanctuary. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not therefore sin, I'm sorry, let sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not, I'm sorry, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. That's a powerful truth. We must consider this truth that we're dead to sin. The truth is there, it's, it's a reality, but we must lay hold of the truth and count on the truth and, and bank on the truth. There's probably coming a time when this pandemic will be behind us in this community, in this country, in the world, when we will be able to put behind us some of the protocols we've had to implement to protect ourselves from the death and sickness that this pandemic brings. And for some of us, it might be hard to leave the mask behind. It might be hard to leave the gloves behind. And some of us may not want to, but if they give us that word that this pandemic is behind us, and perhaps if we just envision some supernatural way in which the, the, the sickness and its potential is behind us, you can enter into what it might be like to embrace that reality. So we must understand and believe and live out the fact that we have died to sin. And we've been raised with Christ. It's mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. It's no small thing that the Lord Jesus Christ was not in the tomb when they went that first Easter Sunday to put spices on his body. It's a very powerful thing that, that God raised him from the dead. That power is at work in you and me. That power by which God raised Christ from the dead is the same power that's available to you and me and too often left unharnessed, too often left not working sufficiently in us. <clears throat> but for some of us and for some of you, that resurrection power is quite evident. There are some individuals you meet in this church and you would never know the death grip that sin once had on them. You would never know the depths to which sin had nearly ruined their lives because the grace of God is so evident. You'd think they grew up like a pastor's kid or something. They're just like so full of grace and truth and, and godliness and righteousness and humility. We should thank God for that, and we should be looking for that, hoping for that, 
Even expecting that as someone comes to Christ, that that the outcome of walking with Jesus, being in the word, being in prayer, being connected in a living way to a church like this would be that. That the life of Christ is present and and, and, and living and and changing the way they interact with frustration and and their, their former associates. We should thank God for that. And, and, and look for that to happen more and more. It is a powerful life. And there's a bit of a mystery here too, isn't it? If you go back to um, Colossians chapter 3. He says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a really powerful expression that Paul gives us. That our life is hidden with Christ. This is Uh, One of the places Paul's unfolding, the great doctrine of union with Christ. Our life is with Christ and it's hidden with him and it's in God. You're connected to Christ. Your true life is hidden with him. And you must lay hold of that and, and, and dig into the depths of that reality You ought to be of all people, I ought to be of all people, one who understands this reality that takes a text like this and just works on it until we understand its meaning and see the the evidence of it lived out. I think of how Martin Luther came to that great text in Romans about the just shall live by faith and and we're told that he just, just wrestled with that text and just beat him pudently on that text until he could understand what Paul meant there. Likewise, we should take a text like this and just delve into it, dig into what it means that your life is hidden with Christ in God. It means your life is changing. It means your life is more and more like Christ. It means that the scriptures mean more to you than television or YouTube or the internet for part of you. But there's part of you for which YouTube is more interesting than the scriptures. And we need to keep fighting that battle. We have the same battle, all of us. Another thing that Paul is saying here, back to Colossians 3, uh, verse 5, is there needs to be a killing of the deadness, right? Verse 5, put to death. Most of us have, have never had to use lethal force, right? Most of us have never had to be the person behind the trigger when a person died or in another context when you were the one responsible for the death of an individual. That's a good thing. Some perhaps have served in battles, military battles, um, uh, recent wars. Some have been soldiers and perhaps have had that experience. And some have had to even put down an animal, you know, whether it's... um, a pet, or whether it's through hunting. There is a significant thing that happens when lethal force is, is used. When lethal force, lethal force is used, it's a very significant moment to see the life of something leave it, and you're the reason it's left it. Paul is saying here, lethal force is authorized. Lethal force is authorized. It's not a small thing to deal with sin in your life. It's not a a thing to take lightly. This isn't like losing weight, that if you can do it, great, and if you can't, well, your resurrection body will be 
better than, than you imagined anyway, right? It's not something light like that. It's not like trying to put your old accent behind you so you can interact with people and not be always marked by the place you came from. It's not like trying to improve your vocabulary. It's not like trying to improve your career. Putting to death the sinfulness in ourselves is something which Paul himself here authorizes the the use of lethal force spiritually. Spiritually take every means possible. Um, The great Puritan John Owens said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. It's authorized to do that. Now, as I mentioned in the message about Christ clearing out the temple, we have to be so careful the way we do that. This is a force that's authorized against killing the sin in you. The cleaning house happens with the one in the mirror. And it means sometimes going to the heart of the sin and the sin under the sin. What was the the mentality, what was the, the working understanding by which you felt you were okay to go in that direction? What was the working supposition I had in my mind when I, when I sinned in this way? We have to go after sin and the sin underneath the sin. It's not flattering to realize that those things are still with us. If the true spiritual picture of what we are and the deadness that we keep with us was was visible to everyone, we wouldn't feel like we looked very beautiful when we went out. But we do, by the power of God, put off the sin and put on the life of Christ. And God is doing that in us and through us through texts like this and through the life we have together with the body of Christ. And then this last point, live the Christ life. Just just look at what Paul gives us in verse 15. a potential, a situation, an outcome that we couldn't have dreamed of before we knew Christ. Paul lays it out there in verse 15 that the peace of Christ can and indeed must rule our hearts. The peace of Christ must be that which is overseeing and refereeing and guarding what comes in and what doesn't come in with our lives. The peace of Christ is to rule our hearts. I think about an expression that that, um, uh, I've heard over the years. You can think about sometimes when somebody's really bothering you, a situation at work, a situation in your neighborhood, a situation with people that are hostile to you. Sometimes you can let that situation sort of rent space in your head where it's just with you all the time and And you're thinking about this person more than they're thinking about you because it just bothers you so much. It's renting space in your head. Paul is saying, don't let that rent space in your head. You let those thoughts know that that room is taken by the peace of Christ, that that peace should abide with you and remain with you. Christ tells us, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, let it not be afraid. So the peace of Christ should rule in our hearts. That is a sweet experience for the individual. It's a sweet experience for those around that individual. It's full of humility. It's full of life. And it produces a wonderful, God-glorifying circumstance. 
As we think about how to apply a text like this, I want to encourage you to, to carefully consider this powerful message for humble church. I want to encourage you to receive it individually as a member of our church or, or as part of our church family or part of the broader body of Christ, perhaps tuned in this morning. I want to encourage all of us as a church, as a member of Milford Bible Church, I want to encourage my fellow members Let us enter into this powerful message for a humble church like ours. That Christ is God, that Christ has taken away our sins, that we have redemption, that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ. And let it affect the relationships that are present with us. Perhaps sheltering at home has produced new tensions for you and the ones you live with or Perhaps sheltering at home alone has produced other kinds of tensions. Let this this book and all the truth of this book speak to those situations. Every situation in which you're waiting on God, every situation in which you're putting sin to death, let the power of this book be used by God in that regard. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for mercy and for grace and for the truth of this great book of Colossians and the truth of these texts that we have looked at this morning. Father, I do pray that you would take and give life to this message and to these texts we have looked at so that we are more and more transformed into the image of Christ, that more and more we live this reality, that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Give us more and more hope as a church, as a church family, as, your, as the body of Christ here and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.